Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Dan Osman, Dr. Mary Simray McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Leila Dan Osman, and today I'm so excited to be joined by our next guest speaker, Dr. Jody Thomas. Dr. Jody Thomas is a licensed clinical psychologist and specializes in pediatric medical illness and trauma. She is the executive director of the Meg Foundation for Pain, a nonprofit organization which aims to empower families with the pain management strategies, skills, and support they need to prevent and reduce pain in children. Dr. Thomas is a well-known expert in pediatric pain who teaches internationally and is also a founder and the former clinical director of the Packard Pediatric Pain Rehabilitation Center at Stanford. Her passion for bringing together the power of medical science, technology, and design to transform the way we think about kids in pain led her to her current focus, but it's her role as a mom of two that solidified her path in creating the Meg Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Jody Thomas, founder and CEO of the Meg Foundation, and I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us today on the Coping Toolbox, a child psych podcast. So today we're going to be talking about needle fears in kids and what parents and healthcare professionals can do to help. Um, So I thought I'd ask the first question about the Meg Foundation and why it exists. So can you tell me a little bit about the foundation and what it does? So the Meg Foundation is a nonprofit that's dedicated to empowering kids and families around pain and medical anxiety. So whether that is kids with chronic illness who are dealing with a lot of procedures or healthy kids going in for vaccinations, making sure that experience is a good one is critical and has a really long-term impact. So the Meg Foundation is about marrying sort of the latest in science and knowledge with technology to be able to get that information to kids and families when and where they need it. That's fantastic. Sounds great. Um, So today we were hoping to talk about needle fears in kids. So I was curious to hear from you. You're located in the U.S. We're here in Canada. um, But in the U.S., how many kids have this fear of getting shots or needles? So we know, generally speaking, um, actually in North America. So uh, I got to say that a lot of our colleagues in this area are in Canada. Um, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, um, our, our Canadian counterparts are uh, ahead of the curve of this. So really excited to, to talk to you guys. A lot of the people we collaborate with are um, north of our border. But it's about, the numbers put it about 63% of kids of elementary school age experience pretty significant needle fear. Wow, that's that's really high. Yes, exactly. Now the numbers and for teenagers it's 50 per, 50% and for um adults and this is where there are some interesting differences between Canada and the US. It's about 25% in the US is our estimate and the numbers are a little bit lower in Canada and there's some kind of working theories to that which are kind of interesting about sort of differences actually in vaccination schedules and their early childhood experiences, and that long-term impact. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. So um, having two girls myself, having gone through the full immunization schedule here in Canada and in Ontario specifically, they get a lot of needles, right? When they're first, you know, in that first year of life or the first yeah. 18 months of life. So um, it's it's interesting to hear you say there may be a difference there with yeah. uh, the routine immunization schedules and how we uh, look at you know, or develop those fears of needles over time. Um, I was just reading something in the news uh, the other day about in Canada, about 10% of adults avoided getting their COVID vaccine yeah. um, due to fears of needles, right? So we know yeah. that's still a pretty significant proportion of the population yeah. um, who are avoiding these really important uh, procedures because of their fear or their anxiety. So my next question for you would be around um, how or why kids develop these fears in early life? Well, so it's interesting. So you mentioned, I know that those needles, uh, zero to 18 months, which in those early experiences are impactful, but we know that this fear really, really takes hold um, when they're about four and five, when they're in that age where they start being able to have more of what we call declarative memory, right? Mm-hmm. That they have more experiences of knowing this and then an also ability to anticipate because that zero to 18 months, they don't necessarily know what's about to happen. It's hard to prep. There is just to be really clear because there are people who are like, oh, it's not that important in that age. I'm like, it absolutely is still important to manage the pain of that experience, zero to 18 months. Because it used to be that that belief was, well, they won't remember it, so it doesn't matter. Right. And we now know that, um, especially for those newborns and particularly for preemies, that those early experiences um, are really important. And so they have impact, even though that child might not remember it. And importantly, the parents remember it. And so parents start having these expectations and anxieties around needle procedures that then they carry on with them. And the most important predictor of a child's distress during a procedure is the parent's distress. And so when we're starting to become anxious in those early experiences, we're carrying that to that, those older experiences. Around four or five, one of the things I really love to do when I'm doing trainings is I will ask providers what their, what their first memory is and their first medical memory. And nine times out of 10, that is a traumatic medical memory. So for me, I absolutely can remember being held down at four years old um, for a blood test, screaming for my mother who was helplessly in the waiting area. That was the time when they definitely separated parents and kids for this, which is, I think, surprising to no one as a parent or a provider at this point is sort of a recipe for trauma. I tell people I can see that you know, that Muppets poster that was on the wall. <laughs> it's been 40 plus years now since this happened. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, but when we think about that, and I think all of us uh, can think back and remember those experiences and they truly imprint on us in a way that you're correct. 10% of those adults who aren't getting the COVID vaccine, not because of a particular anti-vax stance necessarily, but because of that pain and freak out. And we know that that translates also into other things. So, um, you know, the people who we know who don't do doctors and they don't do doctors because of those early experiences and the trauma that that creates. And the fact that we don't talk about this, which is why we're really excited to be here today to talk about it (laughs) and what we can do about it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that brings up such important points about how, you know, when we're looking at memories, um, we're much more inclined to remember these really 
um, anxiety provoking or traumatic experiences, right? So we may not remember all the good times we had needles and didn't feel the pain, but that one time we experienced that trauma, we're going to remember for the rest of our life, right? Unless we kind of deal with that trauma. So, um, and then the impact, you know, of parents on children is huge, right? So if you're a parent who has this needle phobia, there's a pretty good chance your child will have a needle phobia too. Just like if you had a fear of of dogs, your child's more likely to have a fear of dogs, right? So um, that relationship is so strong and so important to be mindful of when, when we're trying to treat children. So why, like we have the knowledge now and the tools or, or more than we used to, right? I know we're still doing research in the area of pediatric pain and trying to figure out what helps kids go through these painful procedures and experiences. But we have a lot of tools, you know, over the last few years that we've um, developed. Uh, so why aren't healthcare professionals doing um, or, you know, using some of these tools during these procedures? And why haven't they all changed their practices? So some some healthcare professionals, I'm sure, are mm-hmm. fantastic with this. But what's your opinion on why um, not more healthcare professionals are using these these strategies? It's an excellent question, because it's, it's frankly mind boggling. So truth is, when it comes to particularly procedural pain, we have 40 years of research that tells us this is true. Like, it's not even a mystery anymore. You know, these are the best practice guidelines of the World Health Organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Canadian Academy of Pediatrics. So it's not a question. So it is the question of like, why aren't more people doing this? Why aren't we doing what we're supposed to? I think one of the major ones is that is really an issue of, of knowledge and training. So kind of 30, 35 years ago, um, meds in the medical community was still teaching the fact that kids, they didn't believe that kids experienced pain the same way adults do. And if they did, it didn't matter because they didn't remember it. And as a result, pain was massively undertreated. I mean, we used mm-hmm. to do full surgeries on newborns who were paralyzed, but not anesthetized because there was a the belief that the anesthesia itself was dangerous, which we know is incredibly untrue and increased infant mortality and all of those things. But as a result, pain in general is massively undertreated. So when we think about that, we're still in that generation, right? The powers that be that run institutions right now, we're trained in that model. We're trained in a very, what we call biomedical model, understanding of pain, where it's just about tissue damage and relieving that tissue damage. And we're talking about a biopsychosocial model of pain, which again is fully research established and studied a million times over at this point, but there are biological, psychological, and social components of the pain experience. Like you're referring to of like the parent having this fear and inadvertently passing it on to their child, right? There's this whole experience. And then you get to the fact that training even today is massively underdone. So like in the U S the statistics are out of seven years of medical training on average, nine to 11 hours of pain education over that entire seven years. And 96% of med schools don't even have a requirement for education in pain. And so, I mean, not that long ago, I was doing consulting at a children's hospital and I stood in a room of 50 residents and gave them those statistics. And I said, does anyone here like feel like they got more education than that? zero hands go up. And I said, who here could explain to me the biopsychosocial model of pain? (laughs) One hand went up and it was the attending. So we're still at a point where we're simply not teaching these things, Um, which is really mind blowing, honestly, because not only of course, does this, we have the direct benefit to the child, but we're also the rates of trauma are higher among the parent than even the child. Because 
that feeling like we can't protect our kids is the most traumatic thing we can experience. And we also know this is the impact on providers and burnout. This is, you know, no pediatric provider signed up to put children in pain. This is not what they like. I never train someone who's been resistant to the idea of this being better. And then even just the healthcare system itself that we know there's some beautiful research there about how we can improve just business efficiency and decrease wait times and decrease burnout for providers. So it's really one of those odd things that if we do it well, everybody wins, (laughs) but it's quite literally why we exist and partner with so many people is to try to make sure that we are changing that practice for everyone. Absolutely. And it's it's so important to get there and to catch up with, you know, the knowledge and the data we have so that we can reduce, um, you know, these really painful experiences for kids and, and help them, right? So yeah. um, we, we break that cycle, right, where they grow up to be these adults who are traumatized or fearful of medical procedures. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this brings me to my next question related to the COVID vaccine. So we know actually, um, recently in the news, the FDA in the U S just approved the Pfizer vaccine for ages five to 11, which is absolutely fantastic news. Um, we're anticipating the vaccine to start very soon over there in the U S here in Canada, it should soon follow. Why is the COVID vaccine particularly concerning as it relates to needle fear? Well, one, you kind of already mentioned, we've got some really strong research evidence that in adults, this is causing vaccine hesitancy, that we could research in Kenda and out of Oxford would both indicate that if we could address this successfully, we decrease vaccine hesitancy by 10%, which is game changing. And those adults are going to be just even larger among kids. And then of course, the issue that is coming is that there are two pokes. So you know, when people white knuckle that flu shot and get through it, and they're usually at the end are like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, we're not going to do this again for a really long time, right? And then hope everyone forgets by next year. And with this, we just don't have that. It is going to become, hey, we're doing this and we'll be back in just a few weeks to do this again. And so making that first experience a good, strong, empowering one is really important because it's going to be very important to get that second. And we do know even from research on some other vaccine, two dose vaccines that compliance with the second dose can go way down um, Mm -hmm. with a bad experience with the first. And so it's one of the reasons why we're pushing so hard in partnering with kind of various organizations to get that word out as much as we can, because this is going to be a, a thing. And I think we're all knowing that vaccines are going to be more and part of our world going forward and not less. So we want these kids feeling empowered and, and parents and parents as well, feeling empowered and good. And they have the skills to make this a good experience. Absolutely. And we want children to feel kind of confident going into that um, situation to get their COVID vaccine, that it's something that is helpful for them and um, they don't have to be scared, right? They have some yeah. tools and strategies going into the situation. Absolutely. Um, so in your opinion, why is it important for kids to get the COVID vaccine right now? Well, I think the the simplest is, you know, we kids are, people are dying. <laughs> we have a vaccine that works. You know, I think the statistic as of yesterday was that in the U S 637 kids have died of COVID and that is 637 too many, not to mention the, you know, the impacts that we don't yet fully understand on long haul COVID and what impact that'll have on children. 
And then, of course, the really important ones that every single child is experiencing, which are these psychological and social impact. And, you know, we want our kids back in school safely and consistently. We want our kids back to activities safely and consistently. We want to get to the point where masks aren't, you know, aren't a necessary thing and vaccines are going to get us there, you know, sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you bring up such important points here. So sometimes I'll hear from, you know, parents or on social media comments like, well, you know, kids don't get that sick from COVID, right? So it's not that critical. But even if you, you know, disagree with the actual health impact of COVID on children, the psychological aspect has been tremendous, right, on children. And um, you know, they're, they've been suffering through this entire pandemic from uh, the stress, the stress that parents are going through, the stress of not being able to attend school regularly and their routine being disrupted. So um, we need to do everything we can as a society to get them back to normal or as close to normal as we can. And if this is one of the solutions, um, we can't delay because, um, you know, as mental health professionals, uh, we're both, you know, child psychologists, it's mm-hmm the impact has been huge, right? In, in clinical practice, um, even just observing, uh, you know, children uh, in our personal lives and what they're going through. So I think that psychological aspect is is really, really important to highlight here, right? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And it's also one of those things when we're talking about parents making these decisions for their kids and on vaccination, as I tell them what I tell patients all the time. And I said, look, you need to make the best decision for you and your family, but I absolutely don't want fear and anxiety making that decision for you. And we know that at present, that needle fear and needle anxiety is making that decision for far too many people, both adults and kids. Do you want to take that off the table? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, So why is it important to help kids with their needle fear? Well, because it really does set that relationship for their, for their attitude towards healthcare and health for a lifetime. And we want kids to be able to feel empowered over themselves and their bodies. And they're seeing that their relationship with the healthcare brighter as collaborative and positive and not something to fear. Kids should not you know, be bursting into tears, pulling into the pediatrician's parking lot. Parents shouldn't have to start making medical decisions, both consciously and unconsciously based on the fear of that freak out, as opposed to what's best for their kids. And we shouldn't have adults who, you know, I have a family member myself who ended up dying of stage four cancer because he waited six months to get a blood test as a result of something which I know is utterly preventable when he was, you know, four and five years old. And we see this impact and that story is not unique. We hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. And what's mind blowing is it's not that hard (laughs) and it's pretty simple. And so these early interventions and getting kids to the point where they feel like this isn't something I love when kids say, well, I don't like needles. I'm like, I know no one who does. I know one's a fan. Okay. But <laughs> what it doesn't have to be is the big, scary monster. This can be an annoying yipping dog that we have ways of avoiding <laughs> as opposed right. to this big, scary monster that we need to cower in the corner from. Absolutely. So this idea of addressing it early in childhood can prevent some of that medical avoidance in the future that can have a huge impact on a person's health, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so, so important. So we've, we've been discussing um, why it's important to address fears of needles in kids and adolescents, the important roles parents can play. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about the actual strategies parents and healthcare providers can implement. So um, what can parents do to help their kids during these procedures? Well, the number one thing that we really want them to do is to make a plan and plan ahead. So a lot of parents have the very natural, very normal, but just happens to be incredibly unhelpful (laughs) tendency to let's just not mention it and tell her pearling into the parking lot or sitting in the waiting room. And then I'll tell parents, I'm like, look, just picture the biggest work meeting of your life, but no one told you until three minutes before. (laughs) Panic. Panic. We're not going to do well. We're not going to go well. Cause I know that intention is always, well, we don't want them to become anxious. And so it's not about not being anxious. It's about having time to work through that anxiety and figure out how to manage it. We can't deprive them of that opportunity. So it's one of the reasons why we've built out a lot of tools um, on megfoundationforpain.org that are free and accessible in multiple languages that guides people through making that plan. And that way people can go in feeling, I know how to handle this challenge ahead of me, as opposed to, I feel helpless and out of control and something bad's going to happen, right? Because that's the recipe for trauma, right? When we feel helpless, uncertain, and vulnerable in that, that situation and perceived threat. And when we can take away those by making a good plan, we're setting the stage for something better. Mm-hmm. So on that plan, there are things as simple as things like comfort positioning, Now, kids should absolutely never be held down for medical procedures. There's a ton of solid research that that is absolutely a recipe for um, for trauma. But there are really good ways where parents can hold their child and like sitting chest to chest. We have actually several guides on this, too, where kids can be held safely in a way that they are both safe to get a procedure, but also feeling comforted and calm and protected. So when you think about kids being held down on their backs, it is really, I, I actually, it's also something I do in training as I'll often have providers lay down on the ground on their backs and notice how that feels and notice that overwhelming desire we have in that position to turn over and cover our chest and protect our vulnerable friends. And it is just this massive human instinct that we have. And so comfort positioning is massive because the physical presence of a parent, our warmth and our closeness actually physiologically changes the child's body and experience and decreases that anxiety and calm and gives us a chance to talk our child through it. And then things that are really simple, like topical anesthetic, numbing cream. This one is often mind-blowing for people, both adults and kids. When we talk about it, they're like, wait, what? That's a thing? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes. And you can get it over the counter <laughs> and you can, your doctor can prescribe it, but um, it can be available over the counter. And it's one that not only we want to put on before, cause it can take a little while to work. It can take like a half hour um, or longer to work depending on the kind, but it's also great because a child knows it becomes a security blanket of sort as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we know something is being done now. Vibration is a really great one. Actually, there's a device called Buzzy Bee, which was recently approved um, for Canada as well. Um, this big thing. So it's a little vibrating device that um, that really goes through what we call sort of the gate control theory of pain. So to experience pain, we got it's got to reach our brain. That's how we experience it. 
And so this is just vibration. And when you place it on the skin, basically in between the poke and the brain, you're creating a traffic jam of signals on that neurological system. So as we tell kids, the ouch signal can't get through because your body's so busy feeling the vibration. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, it's also really fantastic for adults. And actually there's some beautiful evidence that it prevents fainting in adults. So it's older kids and adults. Um, the fear of fainting is part of that fear that doesn't really happen for younger kids, but, um, that stimulation of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems helps prevent fainting, which is exciting. That sounds really cool. I'm going to check out this. It's called the buzzy, right? I'll be Googling. Exactly. I'll happily send you a link. And uh, then also, the, of course, the one of the most powerful is distraction. So every parent on the planet knows what it's like to try to get their child's attention when they're super into that video or movie or toy. And that same power that they have to ignore us when we need them to <laughs> put on their shoes or do whatever, um, we actually kind of use for the power of good. I tell parents this is not their time to restrict screens. And it's a really powerful tool, both before while we're waiting to keep that anxiety at bay, because we're just really distracted on something positive and during. So it's really before and during where it keeps that anxiety in bay, keeps that ramp up from happening. And then literally things can happen and they don't even notice that it occurred. So mm-hmm. all of us have that with us all the time. Um, and encouraging people. So we want them to choose. So choice is power. So every choice that we can give kids is a chance for them to feel more powerful, whether it's this arm or this arm, which video do you want to watch? Which of these choices that you want to make? It's one of the reasons we created what we call super mag, which guides kids through, it educates them on all these choices and has them make choices that were quite literally putting the power in the hands of the child right? That they are going through making that plan. That plan is then sent to the parent along with all the resources they need to make that plan happen. That sounds fantastic. And so these strategies and tools can be found on the megfoundationforpain.org website, um, which I'd highly recommend all our listeners check out because there's lots of great tools and resources on there. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, those strategies, like you mentioned, are so important, so effective in reducing pain and the psychological distress associated with the painful procedure. Um, And there's so much really good research to support all these strategies, right? They, They really do work. Um, so we talked about what parents can do. What can medical professionals do? So, you know, physicians giving the needles, uh, nurses, uh, whoever is uh, doing the procedure, what can they do to help children in, uh, the, during the procedure? Well, there's a number of good things. And I think the one thing to remember that is kind of actually, honestly, what we consider one of our biggest barriers is that people don't realize that these things exist, that negative expectations is our biggest enemy. And so both providers, parents, and kids kind of see this as a necessary evil, as opposed to something that can be avoided. So the number one things we can do as providers is to let patients know that there are things that they can do that are very action. We like to say action is the enemy of anxiety, but that they very much help. And so part of it is educating even themselves that there are things that help. (laughs) This is the first one. Mm -hmm. Two, it's also why we created really all of our tools digitally and designed them. And we actually have a partner kit that's going to be coming out in the next few days where we kind of walk walk different practices through from little practices to major hospitals of, hey, guess what? When you're sending out that reminder email, 
that it's time to get the vaccination that, Hey, by the way, here is this thing, make a plan. And that way, when you come in here, we're going to know what to do. And it creates this common language because we know a lot of the factors that are going to determine how that visit go happens before they enter their doors. Right. And so being able to send out and have them make a plan beforehand is really critical. And then one of the major things we can do is to not is we would say uh, stress is contagious, but so is calm. And so having kids in these clinics where they're lined up out the door and they're hearing other kids screaming or they're seeing the needles. I mean, literally we couldn't do anything more to make this a terrible experience. (laughs) None of us, like all of us feel that thing. So when we have a place where we're creating as much calm and privacy, we're handing kids options. We're having things like posters. We also will have those available where kids are like, oh, okay, cool. They have Buzzy Bee or I can use, they have these distractions. The concept of like reward. I get this question all the time. They're like, is reward okay? I'm like, absolutely. They're because that bribing mm-hmm. them. I'm like, let's just think about it in a different way of that. We are giving them reward for doing something hard. Mm-hmm. And we are also providing them an opportunity to think ahead, to take them out of the difficult moment and put themselves into the positive moment. So things like having rewards, creating a calm environment and talking to them and not threatening. So the thing that we, especially as kids get older, it's like they hit like 10 or 11 and all of a sudden providers will often decide they're too old for this. Right. And there's a shame factor that can go in. And that if you were a big boy or you're too old to be freaking out about this, and then we add the shame factor on top of that trauma, as opposed to being able to say things like, you know what? A lot of people struggle with this. I know a lot of adults who do good news. Let's figure out here are some choices of things that could help. Why don't you pull out your phone and you can just ignore me What I'm going to do my thing. And you focus on TikTok or social media or your video or whatever, where we can give them permission to ignore us, which they're not taught. Often kids are like, I have to be polite and look at the doctor or look at the provider. And you're like, guess what? I'm going to do my thing over here. You go over there and do your thing. And it's going to go better for everyone. And I'm so excited that you found this way to help yourself do better with this. And this is really exciting. So there are a lot of things with language that we can do where we're setting the stage where we're having things available, but I think number one is not having that message is your only choice is white knuckling it, (laughs) which is really how it's often presented and not, there's an instinct that sometimes to kind of do a threat. Right. And I've had that. I mean, I have even in my own really lovely practice where I go in and my daughter actually could start to crawl on my lap because she knows it's comfort positioning, right? She knows we had our plan. And the nurse says, well, if you can't do this, then I'm going to have to. And I was like, I had to cut her off. I'm like, look, we're not going to threaten. Okay. Like you don't need to threaten her. You shouldn't threaten any kid. She's just doing some good coping. Right. And this is what we want to do. So it's a lot of that awareness of, Mm -hmm. um, of get, of there's this impact, but there's a lot of really simple uses of language and quite literally setting the stage we call it kind of our pregame <laughs> of sending resources are setting the stage of, um, of being able to create a setting where it's calmer. There's more separation or not having screaming kids next to each other, <laughs> those types of things legit. And then, you know, game time, which are simple things that we can do and say to kids and offer them in that moment that do it, just take down the temperature. 
Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that some of the points you brought up are important, you know, this idea of, especially for older kids, but also younger, normalizing their Mm -hmm. emotional experience to help regulate them, right? So instead Mm of escalating the dysregulation by minimizing or saying like, you know, grow up or you're a big kid now, why are you acting this way? Really normalizing that experience to help deescalate and calm um, their nerves. And then this idea of, you know, medical professionals um, administering the needles or the immunizations, um, in a way, the need for that flexibility to allow the child and parent to use what works for them, right? So when you said your daughter was crawling up to sit on your lap because it was comforting to her, perhaps a young baby who really um, benefits from being breastfed during a needle. Absolutely. Yeah. Those babies, So the most important, you mentioned the most important interventions for babies is really skin to skin and breastfeeding. Like, again, one of those myths that's really damaging is I don't want to have my kid close to me because I don't want them to associate me with pain. And I'm like, look, your attachment's a lot stronger than that. Um, (laughs) So one, and actually we are truly physiologically and neurologically changing the way that they are processing that signal and breastfeeding um, during pokes is our number one intervention for babies. And then for parents who aren't breastfeeding, um, or can't at that moment, for whatever reason, we call glucose pacifiers. So sweeties, so literally a pacifier dipped in sugar water 30 seconds before and after negates all of these incredibly negative consequences. And it's such a weird, simple intervention that it's been recreated a million times because no one could believe that those simple interventions could prevent these negative outcomes. It's very true. It's hard to believe. (laughs) Exactly. And it's interesting, right? Um, Just that, you know, I am sure physicians in their medical training sometimes don't know what to do with the situation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, like is, you know, a parent supposed to breastfeed while, you know, we're giving a needle. Is that okay? And, and, you know, trying to be flexible. Yes, it is okay. It is natural. And um, it is going to be really helpful for the infant in that experience, right? So yeah, um, you have, you touch on a really important point of the need for advocacy. And that's really that it's just a quick story about really why I was so motivated to start the Meg Foundation is, you know, I've worked in hospital settings and with medically fragile and fed families for 25 years. But then I found myself with my daughter was in the NICU and the research is incredibly clear on how important it is to protect these kids from early pain experiences. We can literally watch their little brains change. We know that we damage, they're not yet fully cooked neurological systems and I find myself in an incredibly good NICU and I, they come in to do a procedure on her. And I looked and I said, so do you want me to hold her skin to skin to the breast? Or do you want to go get a glucose pacifier? And the guy looked at me and said, oh, we don't do that here. And I was like, oh, we do, we do now. <laughs> and, and, and you can, <laughs> he was like, well, and that's what we, we realize is, and he's like, well, that's not, I'm like, I promise you, it is the way it's going to work. You're not going to be permitted. I said, I want to let you do your job, but I can't let what you don't know hurt my baby. And I understand that you don't have the protocols or procedures or training in place, but I still can't let you hurt and potentially damage my child. And so this is what's going to happen. I know you don't understand that, but you know, I'm sitting here with every conference I've spoken at and every poster in my head and every, you know, this montage but I'm standing there in a NICU full of other parents who clearly care and want to protect their child as much as I do. 
but they don't have the knowledge. They didn't have know that they should be fighting for anything, how to fight for it or what they should fight for. And so that's really what the Meg Foundation came to be about was we want to put that power in the parent in the hands of parents so they can feel more confident advocating for their child and knowing what should be happening so they can make that happen. Right. And that's so important, right? Giving parents the knowledge and the power to make those decisions for themselves and their children um, and and knowing what they can ask for and what's available to them. Yeah, absolutely. So important. Um, And, you know, I had an idea as you were talking about, you know, ideally um, having every physician or pediatrician out there giving needles, uh, immunizations to have a poster up in their office Mm -hmm. with all these, you know, interventions, medical and psychological that they could be using or parents can be using um, during the procedure. So Mm -hmm. um, I know back in grad school days when I was doing some pediatric pain research in babies, uh, there were quite a few pediatricians in, in Toronto that had that set up in their office and lots of really cool distracting toys and like toys that would light up or make music and it was really fantastic um but then you know having children myself i i haven't seen that much in the last few years right in in the doctor's offices so um having those tools in the actual doctor's offices will and the posters on the wall will be really helpful i think too moving forward yeah that's what we're hoping for yeah like you said like there are people who do it really really well and when they do it really really well the impact is huge it just doesn't happen enough and so that's what we want parents being able to ask for this. And we want to facilitate the parents' experience and the providers. We're like, hey, we'll give you the posters. We'll tell you what toys should be there. We'll let you know. We definitely want to make your lives easier and better. We deeply appreciate you. Um, but we got to do better. Right. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, thank you so much for uh, participating in our podcast, for being a guest speaker. I think this is such valuable information, especially uh, in current days with the COVID vaccine coming out for kids. I think it will be so helpful for families. I wanted to remind our listeners to check out the links to resources I'll include in the description of the podcast episode. I'm going to include lots of really good links from the Meg Foundation, as well as the Meg Foundation interactive tool uh, for creating a plan plan during the immunizations. Um, And there's also going to be some links for healthcare providers as well. So please check out those links. Thanks so much for having and please people are more than welcome to reach out to us and we're more than happy to help them figure out how to do this both as parents and providers, whatever we can do to support their efforts. We're so grateful and thank you so much for having me here today to talk about it. Wonderful. Thank you so much.